Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 6.15 a.m. Central Daylight Time. It's the 10th of September, 2020. This is episode 283 of Bitcoin and it's coming to you. Got it. Like I said, 6.15 a.m. <coughs> it's like dark outside. It's been dark outside for a while now. Yikes. <clears throat> and oh, I, I, I like getting up at five, but the fact that it takes me a two, you know, two full hours to wake up is distressing. Oh, God. So, where are we going to start today? We're going to start with some Rogaine. Uh, Apocalypse warning and Bitcoin shilling on the Joe Rogan podcast. Shaura Malwa writing this one for Decrypt.co sometime yesterday. And they're talking about the, uh, he's, he's going through the Adam Curry episode, so let's do it. Adam Curry gave a stark warning as he spoke on the Joe Rogan Experience, the popular podcast hosted by American comedian Joe Rogan. On Tuesday, and he offered some kind of solution. Quote, the apocalypse is coming, and you're going to need a Bitcoin. At least one, Curry told Rogan. All right, I'm going to pause right there for just a second to talk a little bit about Adam Curry. That dude is an interesting cat. Um, if you don't know who Adam Curry is presently, uh, he's... The first, as far as we can kind of tell, he's called the Podfather, and he's called the Podfather for a good reason. He is either the very first one who did podcasting, like figured out how to do it, and like build that kind of system out a little bit using the tools that were available to him at the time in the early days of the internet, or he was one of the very first ones. Okay, so I'm pretty sure that we don't really know who the very first podcaster was, but it doesn't really matter. We, we owe quite, we actually owe quite a bit of a homage to Adam Curry. Also, that's not really where, where it gets interesting. What, where it really gets interesting is that back in the day in the eighties, there used to be a channel called MTV. Maybe you've heard of it. They used to actually play music videos, and it was kind of fun, too, because you'd sit down, and for three hours, you'd have what was called a VJ, or a video jockey, uh, that would spin up videos. And I, you know, as far as I can tell, at the very, very early days of MTV, uh, the VJs actually got to select their own music to play. And they would set it up sort of like a radio show host. Uh, or or a, a regular radio DJ where they got control over what, you know, mostly control over what they were going to play. Obviously, there's like even way back in the days of DJs, you were going to have to play, you know, something in the from the end that the industry wanted you to play. But for the most part, uh, you could, you know, as a VJ, you got to spin your own videos. So for three hours, you'd sit down and you'd you know, if you had MTV playing in the background or you just wanted to watch it, that's, you know, how they how they worked. They would spin up their own videos. Uh, I don't know if you've seen MTV lately, but I don't think they even play music anymore. It's sad. But the point is, is that Adam Curry was one of the very first VJs that there was. And if you go back, if you Google Adam Curry and MTV you'll find out that that dude had some hair, man. I mean, like we're talking glam hair, right? Like glam bands, like, you know, the old old school shit like Rat, Poison, stuff like that. I'm talking like Adam Curry had this huge head of hair that was all blown out, like, you know, 
blow dryer, hairspray. I mean, the whole ball of wax. And that, I mean, that's how far back this cat goes. I mean, he's been in media for a long, long time. I think he was in his, oh, probably mid twenties or early twenties, possibly when he was doing that shit with, with MTV. Anyway, that's where Adam Curry comes from. Okay. Just a little bit of, a little bit of history. Continuing on, Curry, who heralded Bitcoin back in 2011, he's a self-confessed believer and even dabbled in mining the then obscure asset, said that holding Bitcoin was a better bet than storing money at traditional banks. He noted that even startups from Silicon Valley were similarly competing against banks by providing their own lucrative deals, such as negative interest rates that pay the customer to take a loan. Rogan had previously fielded an advertisement for Bitcoin Wallet Cash App on a show in August, hosted Morgan Creek digital partner Anthony Pompliano, and was once gifted a whole Bitcoin by Bitcoin educator Andreas Antonopoulos. But despite all that, he still had some outright reservations. Quote, here's the question about Bitcoin. Why can't a competing cryptocurrency arise? And isn't there some sort of manipulation we have seen with all the other cryptocurrencies, said Rogan. But Curry held out Bitcoin's longstanding position in the crypto market to answer that. Quote, 10 years, and Bitcoin has been the only one that you cannot manipulate. All other coins are based off of it, he said. Curry also cited the rampant inflation of the U.S. dollar in the past decades as a reason. He told Rogan, as an example, that one could purchase a new truck back in the 1970s for $5,000, but that money may not be enough for the same product now. And unlike the dollar, Bitcoin's value has only gained, but Rogan didn't seem convinced. Now, Rogan's always going to play it safe, I I suppose, which is odd for somebody like Rogan. But um, yeah... Adam, even Adam Curry is, is shilling Bitcoin. And what I didn't realize is that Adam Curry, he may very well have been the very first recipient of a Bitcoin transaction via ham radio, which was handed to him by our friend Rodolfo Novak. So I don't know exactly when that occurred. It's been a kind of a while, but the fact that he was ham, hamming it up with, uh, Novak, and was one of the recipients, if not the recipient, of the very first Bitcoin transaction via radio wave. I mean, dude, I I need I say more. Okay, what's going on in Africa? Uh, Alexis <clears throat> Akwagiriya. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to do it. And Tom Wilson is writing for Reuters how Bitcoin met the real world in Africa. This was written September the 8th. Four months ago, Abalaji Ajoino made a fundamental change to his business selling mobile phones in a bustling street market in Lagos. He started paying his suppliers in Bitcoin. <clears throat> Adunjo, oh sorry, Adunjo sources handsets and accessories from China and the United Arab Emirates. His Chinese suppliers asked to be paid in the cryptocurrency, he said, for speed and convenience. The shift has boosted his profits as he no longer has to buy dollars using the Nigerian Naira or shell out fees to money transfer firms. It is also one example of how in Africa, Bitcoin, the original and biggest cryptocurrency, is finding the practical use that it has largely failed to elsewhere. Oh, for God's sakes, Reuters. Quote, Bitcoin helped to protect my business against the currency devaluation and enabled me to grow at the same time, Adunjo told Reuters. You don't have to pay charges. You don't have to buy dollars, the 30-year-old said, raising his voice above the sound of loud haggling and the honking of horns of scooters. Adunjo is one of the many people at the heart of the quiet Bitcoin boom in Africa, driven by payments from small businesses, as well as remittances sent home from migrant workers, according to data shared exclusively with Reuters, and interviews with around 20 Bitcoin users and five cryptocurrency exchanges. Monthly cryptocurrency transfers to and from Africa of under $10,000 U.S., typically made by individuals and small businesses, jumped more than 55% in a year to reach $316 million in June, the data from U.S. blockchain research firm Chainalysis shows. The number of monthly transfers also rose by almost half, surpassing 600, according to Chainalysis. Okay. <laughs> I guess they're trying to say 670,000, 
which says the research is the most uh, comprehensive effort yet to map out global crypto use. Much of the activity took place in Nigeria, the continent's largest economy, along with South, uh, South Africa and Kenya. This represents a reversal for Bitcoin, which, despite its birth as a payments tool over a decade ago, has mainly been used for speculation by financial traders rather than for commerce. Why a boom in Africa? Young tech-savvy populations that have adapted quickly to Bitcoin, weaker local currencies that make it harder to get dollars, and the de facto currency of global trade, and complex bureaucracy that complicates money transfers. The Bitcoin users interviewed by Reuters, based in five countries from Nigeria to Botswana, said the cryptocurrency was helping people make their businesses nimbler and more profitable, and helping those working in places like Europe and North America hang on to more than the earnings they send home. Yet risks abound. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are unregulated in many countries, and their legal status is unclear, meaning there is no safety net and little recourse if you lose funds. For many, converting local currencies to and from Bitcoin relies on informal brokers. Prices are volatile and buying and selling is a complex process that demands technical knowledge. In 2018, the Nigerian Central Bank warned cryptocurrencies were not legal tender and investors were unprotected. Oh, good Lord, stop. I clicked so that I could scroll down and it took me to another page. Sorry about that. A steady stream of customers comes and goes from... Uh, uh, Odunjo's shop, one of a dozen units along a dark corridor in an indoor section of the market known as Computer Village. Odunjo makes two or three transfers a month of around 0.5 to 0.7 Bitcoin each to suppliers in Shanghai and Shangzhou. East Asia Chainalysis found is one of the top partners for Bitcoin trading with Africa. Adunjo's trades offer a microcosm of the wider trends at play in both Nigeria and across the continent. In Nigeria, small cryptocurrencies transfers totaled nearly $56 million in June, nearly 50% more than a year before. The number of transactions jumped over 55% to 120,000. Gauging how cryptocurrencies are used in particular locations is tough, though. Digital coins offer a high degree of anonymity and... Though the value of transactions can be tracked on the blockchain, the identity or whereabouts of a user cannot. Well, mostly can't, okay? So just be aware. It's not that it can't. It's that it's hard. But you, by your own actions, can make it easier if you screw this all up. But that's for another time. Chain analysis which tracks crypto flows for financial firms and U.S. law enforcement, gathered the data by analyzing web traffic, and trading patterns, through location, though locations can be obscured by virtual private networks. It separated transfers from under $10,000 from larger sums common among professional traders. The, with Nigeria's oil-dependent economy rocked by low crude prices in COVID-19, the central bank has twice devalued the Naira this year. As a result, Adunjo and other importers must pay more to buy increasingly scarce dollars. The Naira's fall has pushed many Nigerians toward Bitcoin. The interviews showed as they seek methods of purchasing goods from overseas without having to buy dollars. Sylvester Kalu, who runs a clothing starch maker. A, a, a what? Clothing starch? Okay. I guess they still do that shit. Who runs a clothing starch maker in Uyo, eastern Nigeria, uses Bitcoin to buy supplies from Istanbul and Shenzhen. Quote, everything is oil. When the price of oil dropped, Forex became scarce, he said. That became a very big problem. The 30-year-old said his transactions totaled around two Bitcoin at a time, adding, I don't need anyone in the banks. I don't need a person to use the back door to get dollars. Timmy Ajiboy, who runs Lagos Exchange by Bitcoin, said its monthly cryptocurrency volumes jumped over threefold to $21 million in June after the Naira was devalued in March. Exchanges across Africa spoke of a similar boom. Yellow Card, which operates in five countries, said its monthly crypto volumes had jumped fivefold in 2020 to $25 million in August. A big driver was working using Bitcoin for remittances, it added. Luno said the combined monthly Bitcoin trading volume of all market participants in South Africa and Nigeria had jumped by half this year to more than $536 million in August. For some people working abroad in other continents or other African countries, 
sending money home via Bitcoin can be quicker and cheaper. <clears throat> a Nigerian worker in London sending 100 pounds in cash to Lagos via a big traditional money transfer firm, for example, would pay fees of around 5%. Costs are lower when sending larger amounts or using a debit card, but the exchange rates on offer are typically several percentage points less favorable than the market rate. Bitcoin fees vary depending on the exchange or broker, but would typically total about 2 to 2.5% for sending 100 pounds. However, both exchanges and over-the-counter brokers carry risks, from hacks to scams, and Bitcoin, while handy for transfers, isn't much use on the ground. Shops and landlords rarely accept it, for instance. This means friends or family sent funds by workers must convert it back to traditional currencies, often via a broker at their end, introducing additional risk. Yet, the Bitcoin users interviewed said many OTC brokers who rely on word-of-mouth reviews functioned reliably or yeah functioned reliably in an increasingly competitive market and were loath to imperil the reputations they needed to stay in business and for a growing number of people the potential rewards outweighs the pitfalls quote people are very adoptive of any technology that will make their lives easier said franklin kaihuhu a crypto broker in kenya's capital nairobi and most african countries there are lots of government restrictions that Bitcoin takes away. So I have said it on several occasions that you need to watch Africa. I've also said that you need to watch Central and South America because honestly, and I've said it then and I'll say it again here. It's not the West you should be looking at. Hell, it's not even China that you really should be looking at for adoption. Why? Because both of those sets of nations or states in the, in the situation of China have functioning, have functioning economy ecosystems or economic ecosystems. They're not good. <clears throat> they are definitely not in your, you know, they definitely don't go in your favor, but they function. It's when shit breaks completely down and doesn't function, that's when the human, you know, human nature takes over and starts finding any Thing else and once it starts happening they're not going to go back let's say Nairobi decides oh you know what our shit's broken we're going to fix the entire financial system and let's say that they do now if they did it tomorrow that could be a problem for something like Bitcoin but you know that they won't if they do fix it at all it would be over the next several years it would, t- it would probably take them that long I guess they su- supposedly or theoretically, they could fix it in like a full year, but you know that they won't. And even if they did, I don't think that they'd really do it. And it would, or rather, I don't think it would take. I think it would take a lot longer than than a year for them to do it. By that time, there's going to be so many people that are using Bitcoin, and they're just like, I'm not. I don't have a reason to go back. Why? Because it works for me. That's why. So <clears throat> yeah. Ugh. Just keep that in mind. Africa, Central and South America, these are these are the places, the continents that we really need to be keeping an eye on to figure out where Bitcoin is is going as far as on the ground usage. <clears throat> A high severity bug in Bitcoin software was revealed after two years. It was fixed, and then two years later, we just found out about it. This was written September the 9th for Coindust by William Foxley. A previously undisclosed vulnerability in the Bitcoin Core software could have allowed attackers to steal funds, delay settlements, or split the largest Bitcoin network into conflicting versions had it not been quietly patched two years ago. That's according to a paper published Wednesday by Braden Fuller, a protocol engineer at crypto shopping site Purse who caught the vulnerability in June of 2018 and Javad Javid Khan, sorry, Javid Khan, a core developer of the Handshake protocol. The vulnerability was given a secure severity level of 7.8 on a scale of 1 to 10, which deemed high. 9 or above is considered critical. It was caused by remote nodes failing to clear invalid transactions from their memory console Coindesk. The inability to clear those transactions could lead to an aggressor flooding a victim node with stale data in what is referred to as an uncontrolled resource consumption, eventually causing the node to shut down the paper states. 
layer two solutions, such as the Lightning Network, the experimental payment system built on top of the Bitcoin blockchain, were at risk due to the vulnerability. Bitcoin full nodes were not at risk of losing funds. Quote, there is no mechanism to make sure that the pending details of a transaction are valid or not. In certain cases, you could flip up the remote memory or fill up the remote memory with invalid transactions, Khan said. No attempt to take advantage of the hole was found in the wild, Khan and Fuller wrote. The vulnerability could not be disclosed publicly for over two years as node operators took longer than expected to update, Fuller said. While the vulnerability was fixed, its disclosure highlights the difficulties of building a global money standard on programming languages created by humans, not to mention the high technical barriers to engaging in development of the top cryptocurrency. The vulnerability <clears throat> was introduced to Bitcoin Core in November of 2017. Some 50% of Bitcoin nodes at the time were exposed to the attack vector, according to the paper. Earlier versions of Bitcoin Core were not affected. Khan said that the vulnerability could have, been, could have enabled an attacker to steal funds from nodes that had open channels on Lightning, Bitcoin Core versions 0.16.0 and 16.1 were affected and patched by developer Matt Corallo following Fuller's disclosure to the core team in January of 2018. Corallo did not answer questions seeking comment by press time. Probably good on Matt's part. The discovery by Fuller, who has also worked as lead developer at Decentralized Cloud Storage Protocol Storage, was followed by another Bitcoin bug addressed two months later in the Bitcoin Core 16.3. Also a vector for a denial-of-service attack, one ex aspect of that bug follow, or al allowed miners to inflate the supply of Bitcoin as they could double-spend certain values, the Bitcoin Core team wrote at the time. The emergency patch issued in the Bitcoin Core version addressed Fuller's bug as well. Khan and Fuller wrote, <clears throat> a spot was reserved for the resource consumption vulnerability on the National Institute of Standards and Technologies Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures, or the CVE registry, as CVE <clears throat> 2018 17145 in 2018, but it has yet to be filled out. The registry acts as a public glossary for software bugs of note. Bitcoin Core is the reference implementation or standard version of the network software from which others are derived. According to the paper, the exploit was also possible on several other implementations of Bitcoin and its offshoots. <clears throat> so that would be Bitcoin Knots version 16.0, all beta versions of Bcoin up to 1.0.0, all versions of BTCD up to version 0.20.1, Litecoin Core version 16.0, Namecoin Coin, Namecoin Core, version 0.16.1, all versions of Decred or DCRD up to version 1.5.1, all of the implementations have been patched. So that's, you know, ah, that's kind of scary. Honestly, having a bug out in the wild for and not know about it for two years, yeah, that never makes me feel good. I'm, you know, I'm not going to sit here and blow smoke up your ass saying, oh, Bitcoin perfect, Bitcoin always perfect. No, this shit ain't perfect. And it's not going to be perfect, okay? So, again, you know, no matter what you do, no matter where you are, you always have to be, you know, uh, mindful of the fact that at any given time, we could find something that really sucks ass. So, just be aware, all right? Okay. Bitcoinist.com's Nick Chong is writing this one yesterday. Wall Street veteran has more than 50% of his portfolio in Bitcoin. Here's why. I, I do foresee the Forbes 50 over 50 list coming out soon. I do. I, I really think that that's going to happen. I think Forbes is going to have a 50 over 50 list. <clears throat> in August, Raul Powell, the CEO of Real Vision, revealed that he thinks he is irresponsibly long on Bitcoin. This comes after he publicly announced he would be increasing his personal exposure to the asset class to 25%. Since then, investors have constantly asked him about the size of his position, trying to gauge where the Wall Street vet veteran is at with Bitcoin. On September the 8th, Powell said that he is now over 50%, referencing the percent of his portfolio that is currently in BTC. This comment was made in response to, to one of his followers telling the former Goldman Sachs head of hedge fund sales that he should follow Anthony Pompliano's example. 
Pompliano, former Facebook team lead and crypto investor, has gone on CNBC saying he has 50% of his assets in Bitcoin. The reason why Powell is so bullish is that he sees ongoing macroeconomic trends bolstering Bitcoin's growth. Commenting on recent comments from the Federal Reserve, Raul said, quote, Most people don't understand the latter, but is simply put, Powell has shown that there is zero tolerance for deflation, so they will do anything to stop it. And that is good for the two hardest assets, gold and Bitcoin. Powell wants inflation. I don't think he gets true demand push inflation, but he will get fiat devaluation in conjunction with the other central banks all on the same mission, end quote. Powell added in a separate analysis that there was a likelihood Bitcoin may be the only asset worth owning. Powell is far from the only Wall Street veteran that is extremely bullish on Bitcoin at the moment. Mike Novogratz, Arthur Hayes, and Dan Moorhead are among those that have recently doubled down on the leading cryptocurrency despite much uncertainty. So, I, which is, I, you know, those last names, because all of them, you know, Mike Novogratz, has some severe shit coinery going on in his past and present. Arthur Hayes, well, I mean, it's Arthur Hayes, dude. It's like big shit coiner. Dan Moorhead has shown that he is not against shit coining. And yet all of them are still like more into the BTC side than anything else. So that's, yeah, that's always good news. Now let's see. Uh, Chinese authorities charged six people over a 5.8 billion plus token Ponzi scheme. Samuel Haig writing for Cointelegraph sometime this morning, six individuals associated with Plus Token have been prosecuted by Chinese police. The defendants, I'm not even going to pronounce these things. Six defendants were charged by plot prosecutors in Shangzhou County and Shangjiang City in, on September the 7th. The authority said that they were suspected in organizing and leading criminal pyramid schemes. 109 individuals suspected of involvement with Plus Token were arrested in late July, including 27 people believed to be the scam's executives, along with 82, quote, key promoters. The accused ringleader of the scheme was also arrested in May, while a further six suspects were extradited to China from Vanatu in July of 2019. So China is still going after people that had anything to do with shilling Plus Token. So be aware this is why I, this is one of the reasons why I don't shitcoin. So just, just saying. News of Bitcoin's death has been greatly exaggerated. Abi Nuasu is writing September the 8th for btctimes.com. Welcome to the road of Bitcoin hegemony, a weekly analysis. Oh, sorry, God, I screwed that up again. That is not the start of the article. That's a description of the piece. Sorry. Bitcoin is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to meet its maker. This is an ex-cryptocurrency. Oh, man, that's... Man, dude, that's sad from a bag. People have been predicting Bitcoin's demise from the moment it first burst onto the public consciousness, and they've been wrong every single time. So when when some people claim that its recent price fall means Bitcoin is going the way of the dinosaurs or the Norwegian blue, it's hard to take them too seriously, and especially not when it coincided with some truly historic news that will only strengthen demand for Bitcoin. Last week, a truly depressing milestone with reports that the size of the U.S. national debt will soon exceed the value of the economy for the first time since World War II. The fact that this happened before is not a good sign, and it only happened since the inception of the Fed in 1913 which preceded the very first world war. Just keep that shit in mind, okay? So, Fed created 1913. Before that, wars were for the United States were more or less kind of skirmishes, but world wars unheard of. I mean, honestly, just kind of unheard of. Until the very year after the Federal Reserve inception in 1913, 1914, eh, we had eh, okay, you you know how you know how history works. All right. Blame COVID if you like, but this has been in the cards for years, the results of our long-standing tolerance for and addiction to national debt. The pandemic merely brought it forward a little. I'd, I'd argue it brought it forward quite a lot. Debt used to be the dirty secret that no one needed to acknowledge. It was e- always easy to ignore thanks to the United States' exorbitant privilege as the printer of the world reserve currency, the, money's, the monetary strategy of reducing debt through high inflation, and other countries' belief that there is no better alternatives to the U.S. and the U.S. dollar hegemony. 
The view that U.S. debt represents a safe haven is starting to look like a distinctly 20th century narrative with $230 billion already sold off over the last 10 years and rumors swirling that China may sell off $270 billion more. If you have a buyer, no, honestly, dude, if you have a buyer, <clears throat> I had said it before, Caitlin Long said this thing one day when she was talking to, I think it was Trace Mayer, said at one point, a United States bond auction is going to fail. And when it does, oh boy. Just saying. In other countries, especially Japan, oh, sorry, if other countries, especially Japan, follow suit, it really will be the death knell for the myth that the world's biggest economy can keep racking up debt without suffering serious consequences. With the naked emperor exposed, a new standard will naturally come to the fore. Some think this will be the Chinese yuan. Others, IMF special drawing rights, which is effectively a basket of fiat currencies. I think trust in a nation-state's ability to act in the global best interest above their own will continue to erode, and so only a decentralized currency will fit the bill. What a shame Bitcoin died last week. Even so, I might hodl just a bit longer. <laughs> Revolution is not just, oh, sorry, yeah, that's, yeah, never mind. That's that's a different piece that, that he's writing. But, uh, yeah, Obi's right. I mean, your best interest will always supersede the interest of anybody else that you say, you know, quote, unquote, say that you're doing it for. It's always going to be that way. And the more or the less people that are involved in being able to turn the lever on the money printer, the more likely it is that it's going to happen. So the world's best interest is probably the world's least interest when it comes to people who have their hands on the trigger. Let's run the numbers. At this horrendous hour of 6.47 a.m. Central Daylight Time, we have index futures looking like uh, they're going to be, you know, well, more or less sideways, kind of. Um, like, let's see, what do we got here? Where's my index futures? Are there? It's going to be like, yeah, Dow and S&P are both, you know, looks like they're going to open down by half a point. The S&P uh, mini is going to be open down half a point, And NASDAQ is just going to move sideways. So there you go on that. Energy, oil taking another slap in the face by 1.5% to the downside. Uh, West Texas Intermediate is going to set you back per barrel, $37.50. Brent is at $40.32. Uh, natural gas has taken a hit to the downside, 2%. It's $2.35 for a thousand cubic feet of natural gas. But let's talk about real money. Bitcoin Recovering from this blasting that it's been getting over the last couple of days, it's at 10,291. I mean, okay, so, all right, all right, not quite a recovery. Let's just say that it recovered above 10,000, at least for now. You know how this shit goes. Okay, stop listening to people who, who say that it's dead because, you know, it didn't hold 10,000. We've seen this a lot of times. <laughs> 324,000 transactions were conducted in the last 24 hours, giving us about 13,500 transactions on average per hour with 3.1 million BTC being sent over that period. That's 17% of the entirety of the market cap of Bitcoin sent in 24 hours. That's, man, that's some seriously liquid shit right there. 130,000 BTC are being sent on average per hour with about 10 BTC being sent on average uh, for every transaction. But the median transaction value is 0.05 BTC or about 530 bucks. Block times are high at 10 minutes and 40 seconds. We have 0.7 BTC being taken in fees on a per block basis and about 100 BTC being taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. Hash rate we have a single digit drop of 7.7% in the last 24 hours. That brings us down to a measly, well, okay, 130 exahashes per second. Ethereum is at 364, yeah, let's call it 365. Bcash at 
226, Litecoin at 48.5, BSV at 169, Ethereum Classic at 5.25, Dogecoin at 0.008, 53,000 transactions in the last 24 hours on Doge. As usual, beats Ethereum Classic, Litecoin, and Bcash. Clark Moody's Bitcoin. Uh, Clark Moody showed a price of 10290 There are 18,484,946.08 BTC in circulation. And there are 7,295 transactions waiting to be cleared, which will take about 11 blocks. For the Lightning Network, we now have... All right. Yes, baby. We have 1,061 BTC in the Lightning Network. That gives us about $11 million in liquidity across 7,473 nodes representing 36,674 channels. But the big news, we've hit 50% on percentage of Tor capacity. Half of the Lightning Network is now running over Tor. I, I need an applause sound effect for that shit right there, man. That means that 530.34 BTC are in the Tor side of the Lightning Network, and that is sitting on 2,388 nodes that we know of. That's going to do it for Vitals. Welcome to part two of the Morning Roundup where hackers demand $7.7 million in Bitcoin from electricity company in Pakistan. Sharia Malwa is writing this sometime this morning for Decrypt.co. K-Electric, the bigger, biggest power producer in Pakistan and the sole provider in the city of Karachi, suffered a ransomware attack this week with hackers demanding over $7 million in Bitcoin to restore its services, according to Bleeping Computer. The firm services over 2.5 million customers in the country and faced a disruption in billing and online payment service after the attack. The attack was discovered by K-Electric engineers on September the 7th, but the supply of electricity in the city was not affected. As per the report, hackers utilized a NetWalker attack to compromise the company, a virus strain discovered in 2019 that infects popular software applications running on Microsoft Windows, such as Office, Word, and Excel. Once deployed, network encrypts data on victim computers and disables file access until a ransom is paid out. Hackers followed the same steps with K-Electric. After infecting the electricity firm, they demanded $3.8 million ransom to be paid in Bitcoin through the anonymous browser Tor. The hackers added in a message to the company, quote, if there is no payment made by September the 15th, the price increases by two times and will be $7.7 million. The same message noted the hacker's operator stole unencrypted files from K-Electric before performing the attack. However, it did not reveal the exact type of data they stole or the total amount of files stolen. Quote, the KE teams have initiated consultation with international information security experts and are also collaborating with local authorities in this regard, K-Electric told Decrypt in a statement. The attack comes in quick succession after Argentinian borders Forces suffered the same NetWalker virus earlier this week. Hackers demanded $4 million in that instance, but the Argentinian authorities refused to pay. Enterprise ransomware like NetWalker, which targets companies instead of individuals, is a growing threat to the world, accounting for over $25 million in ransom earnings for the hackers, as per this report. And it's something blockchain just can't fix. But I'll bet you Linux would. Just saying. Daily Hodel staff writing for the Daily Hodel sometime this morning. $715 million worth of Bitcoin in a wallet is up for grabs among crypto sleuths. A Bitcoin wallet said to be holding more than $715 million worth of BTC is being passed around a community of hackers. Alon Gal, the chief technology officer at the corporate network security firm Hudson Rock, says he is currently in possession of the wallet that is said to hold 69,000 BTC. Coders are trying to figure out the password that will crack the Bitcoin core wallet.dat file. Gal jokes that Google should help him out by lending out its quantum computer. <clears throat> how quickly real-world quantum computing applications will develop or how swiftly they'll be able to impact industries or affect cryptographic systems such as Bitcoin is the subject of rigorous and ongoing debate. Present-day quantum computers 
are not nearly powerful enough to actually crack cryptographic systems, though different computer companies continue to develop stronger models. Industrial powerhouse Honeywell, for example, announced in June that its team of, of scientists, engineers, and technicians have, has delivered a computer with a quantum volume of 64. I guess that's 64 qubits. Far surpassing previously, previous models that were available, quantum volume measures a variety of different metrics, including the number of quantum physics computing bits, yeah, qubits, efficiency, and the strength of the interconnection between the system's qubits. Dragos Illy, a quantum computing and encryption researcher at Imperial College of London, argues that adding more and more qubits to scale a system is tricky and may ultimately lead to a destabilized system. Quote, Google supercomputer currently has 53 qubits. In order to have any effect on Bitcoin or most other financial systems, it would take at least about 1,500 qubits and the system must allow for the entanglement of all of them. There's also the possibility that the wallet gal has, con has contains a lot less Bitcoin than it advertises about that quote someone alerted me <clears throat> that there might be a method to forge wallets although i don't know if it's true or if it's applied to this specific wallet there's a thriving market for selling uncracked wallets where i know some crackers had undeniable success in quote gal himself doesn't appear particularly convinced that the wallet will be cracked anytime soon so <laughs> man yikes <clears throat> that's actually a little scary but i mean it's i don't know I guess it, I shouldn't be all that worried because honestly, quantum computing, it's, it's clearly it's happened. It's going to continue to happen and it's going to continue to get better. But for some reason or another, I just think we're going to win that race. I really do. I, I think we're going to end up with, that may be the last thing that I would want for the ossification of Bitcoin is some quantum, I don't know, I guess it'd be like a, I guess a quant like a, a hashing algorithm that was quantum secured and the ability to generate wallet addresses with a quantum secured uh, algorithm. That that's and at that point, I think that would be where I'd be okay, shut it down. But that's not my business. I'm not a core developer. Owning a Bitcoin ATM is about to get a lot harder in Germany. Blockchain regulation continues to increase, and it isn't likely to slow down anytime soon. Benjamin Pyrus is writing for Cointelegraph sometime yesterday in an effort to increase the country's legal overwatch. Germany now says BTC ATMs require regulatory approval before they are allowed to operate. ATMs that offer assets such as Litecoin and Bitcoin now require a license from Germany's financial regulator, BaFin. A September 8th statement from the entity said, quote, proprietary trading is a financial service and financial commission business is a banking business <clears throat> for which prior approval from BaFin is required, end quote. This does not appear so much as a new ruling as it does a clarification of current legal requirements, quote, those who set up such crypto machines that do not have permission from BaFin are acting illegally. <gasps> if it pleases the crown, may I actually do a business? Sorry, uh, Cointelegraph reached out for Ba Finn for additional details, but received no response as of press time. This article will be updated accordingly should a response come in. The regulator also explained that property owners, businesses, etc. may be liable for Bitcoin ATMs set up on their property if those ATMs are unlicensed. Oh, so carrying the risk over to everybody, are we? Regardless of who actually owns the machines, many nations have tightened their watch in recent months rewarding or regarding cryptocurrencies, including the European Union, with its fifth anti-money laundering directive, also known as AMLD5 or 5AMLD, depending on how you're reading it. <clears throat> so, that, yeah, that's, that's interesting. When I went to Bitblock Boom, I was staying with my sister, and even though that she's, you know, She's in a pretty cool neighborhood in Dallas. It's not all that far to get into the barrio. And I'm talking hardcore barrio too, man. And you got to pass through it from the way that I go. I got to pass through it on the way to her house and on the way back to her house to get to the uh, to the freeway. So I pulled over, got gas. It was chilling out. I, I sent a, put a picture of it up on Twitter while I was at, leaving Bitblock Boom. And um, <clears throat> there it was, chilling out in the middle of a, Freaking convenience store with gas pumps outside in the bar in the middle of the damn Dallas barrio or one of them. There's actually, there's a couple of them. Um, 
just chilling out in the very back, right next to a regular ATM machine was a full-blown Bitcoin ATM machine, and that's what it said, Bitcoin. It didn't say Bcash. It didn't say BSV. It didn't say Ethereum. No, no. It was like Bitcoin Orange and said Bitcoin ATM. Buy your Bitcoin here. <clears throat> so extending the risk, the legal ramifications and the legal risks to the store owner, you know what that shows me is it shows me pure fear. I'm just saying. It just sounds like people are starting to get scared of this. And if you're in the legacy financial industry, or especially as a regulator and your job depends on it, you're going to go after this shit hardcore. But here's the problem. I could act, I could technically walk down the street with mesh network antenna strapped to a backpack, a bat like a battery pack or a couple of them in that backpack holding a Bitcoin full node and a lightning node and have it connected to a wallet on my damn phone. And now all of a sudden I'm a mobile ATM. So who are you going to sue? The city? Is that who you're going to go after? Because I'm on the city city's property. I, and I'm just acting as a human ATM machine. Not that that would be all that smart because people would automatically know that at any given time you'd have cash on you because you were taking cash. Or, or are you? You could be taking something like, I don't know, maybe a debit card payment. I, I don't know. It's just that I know that it's possible <laughs> as to whether or not it's legal is a completely different question. But, you know, I mean, if you're just chilling out, walking down the, walking down the street, selling, um, you have a chance to get away if somebody's tried to catch it, I guess. Sushi Swap Head Chef Dumps Tokens plans to focus on migration. That's all Bullshit, by the way. Chef Nomi left some food on the table. No, he didn't. Those are plastic representations. This is Amelia David writing for Cointelegraph sometime on the 5th of September. Now, I was going to do this yesterday. I was, but as as you know, if well, if you saw my tweet, I didn't put out a show yesterday simply because I had no internet access. Now, I could have recorded the show. <clears throat> And read it all off my phone, but there's no way that I was going to be able to upload it in, you know, in time. And by the time that I was going to be able to upload it, it was like something like two o'clock in the afternoon, which means that it's three o'clock East Coast time. It just, it was just a wash yesterday. So anyway, here, here we are. I was alluding to this the day before yesterday, however, <clears throat> that the uh, head guy from Sushi dumped all his coins. Let's see what's going on here. We have this <clears throat> on the heels of skepticism of the project. Sushi Swap Project head Chef Nomi dumped sushi toker, tokens over the weekend. In a series of tweets, the anonymous personality Chef Nomi claimed converting sushi tokens is meant to move the project away from doubts on its migration from Uniswap to Sushi Swap. Quote, I did the recent move because I care about the community. <laughs> Oh my God. <clears throat> he continues, I'm taking IL for you. I don't know what that means. But I received all, but all I received was blaming and fudding. Here's what happened. The, the dev share part of me. I converted them to ETH. I stopped caring about price and I will focus on the technicality of the migration, end quote. I'm not exactly sure how that works out, but it's kind of broken English there. Sushi has been under scrutiny for the past few weeks as Chef Nomi was the only person to have access to $27 million in Sushi tokens. Chef Nomi said these tokens were held for further development of the project. The project has been a rising star, representing at least 77% of the action on Uniswap as of September the 1st. Chef Nomi said the move is consistent with what other developers have done for their coins. Success, quote, people asked if I exited, okay, again, broken English, here we go. People asked if I exited scam. I did not. I am still here. I will continue to participate in the discussion. I will help with the technical part. I will help ensure we have a successful migration. At Satoshi Light did that, and Litecoin had no problem surviving, end quote. Sushi Swap's general manager previously told Cointelegraph the project is still being developed despite people's skepticism and that, quote, code shows everything, end quote. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Code cannot show the intent of the people who hold the majority of the keys. I'm sorry. C 
code doesn't fix that, it's not, it, it just doesn't. Okay. You, if you're, if you're holding sushi and you're hoping beyond all hope that you didn't get exit scammed, I fear, and I, I, I fear for you as well as I feel for you. Now we're going to do this one more with sushi swap, uh, sushi swap migration ushers in era of pol- protocol politicians. This was written September the 9th for CoinDesk by Brady Dale. Okay. SushiSwap, the community-owned automated market maker, now has a new set of leaders. Nine signers of a multi-sig wallet controlling the project's funds have been elected to govern SushiSwap through full full decentralization. Jesus. (laughs) I'm sorry. It kind of hurts to read this shit, but we'll do it. On Ethereum, a multi-sig has worked out to be something like a board of directors in the analog world, such that it takes any six of the nine members to approve changes to the SushiSwap code or to spend its development funds. Yeah, I wonder how that worked out for Yam. Oh yeah, that's right. It killed itself because of that. These new leaders were chosen through a process largely inside the SushiSwap Discord server following the departure of two of the project's three co-founders. Some stumped up, stumped for a spot, and some sailed through by name recognition within the community, reflecting a campaign-like process we are likely to see more of in the future. For context, cryptocurrency projects approve actions using signatures of pri- by private keys. Properly signed statements authorize the Ethereum blockchain to take actions it is directed to take by allowing multiple signature setups where actions can be approved by a few of a large set of authorized signers. Smart contract-based protocols can create a board, but without the face-to-face meetings. In the SushiSwap election, 2,143 wallets participated, each able to vote for as many candidates as they wanted. Participants could also vote against specific candidates. Voting ended at 1,400 UTC September the 9th. Users had to have liquidity provider or LP tokens in the sushi slash eighth pool on SushiSwap to vote rather than simply holding sushi. <clears throat> Newly elected multi-sig member Mick Hagen, a founder of crypto startup Genesis Block, explained to Coindesk, quote, the people who have the most skin in the game, their sushi and ETH actively at stake, should have the loudest voice and most voting power. Oh, hurts it really hurts when i see this kind of stupidity this is proof of stake clearly and it's going to get people into a lot of trouble newly elected multi-sig member ox maki pointed out that this setup protects against people borrowing sushi to impact a vote ox maki the remaining sushi swap co-founder added that more advanced participation schemes such as quadratic voting will be floated to the community soon the newly elected members are Sam Bankman-Fried, FTX, Robert Leshner, Compound Labs, uh, OX Maki, Larry Cermak, of course. Oh, God. Okay, hold on. Larry Cermak, and then there's parentheses the bl- from the block, um, who is sometimes credited with inspiring sushi swap. Oh, that's not CMS Holdings, an investment firm launched in November. Matthew Graham, Sino Global Capital. Hagen, Adam Cochran from DuckDuckGo. And Zippo, the pseudonymous creator of the SushiSwap dashboard. Uh, Coindesk has not yet managed to confirm directly with all nine of the elected members as to whether they will take their positions. Thus far, Leshner, Maki, and Hagen, tentatively pending counsel, have confirmed directly that they plan to take the role. Based on statements on Twitter, it seems clear that Bankman Freed, CMS Holdings, Cochrane, and Zippo will as well. So is politics coming to crypto. <laughs> it's been here, dude. Crypto entrepreneur Rick Burton has been well ahead of this trend of people taking leadership roles and protocols, first stating his intention back in January during discussions of the DigiDAO or Digi, sorry, Digix DAO token buyback to be a protocol politician. The idea is to enable smaller holders of governance tokens to delegate their clout to protocol politicians as a countervailing force to crypto whales and the big venture capital firms with large token holdings. I'm going to stop right there. That's a narrative being spun up. They are going to protect you against these evil things that are crypto whales and and the evil venture capital firms. 
not saying that venture capital firms are all good and like you should trust them all. I'm just saying that I, I, I smell a narrative on the rise. Just saying. The sushi swap process cued closer to a traditional political campaign than some others have, though in much more modest ways. Several candidates posted statements of various kinds in the multi-sig interview channel <clears throat> interviews channel on the sushi swap discord for example there cochran wrote a lengthy statement including the following quote i was the first voice to come out pointing out the major red flags in chef nomi's project and the need for a multi-sig wallet because of this i was accused of spreading fud and even received personal threats people didn't realize i was invested in sushi end quote <clears throat> hagan told coindesk that when the multi-sig was first floated a lot of anonymous accounts and influencers uh, started making noise about it on Twitter, but that quickly became pointless from his perspective. He wrote in an email, quote, the only semi-influencer that became a signer in the end was journalist Larry Cermak, but all the other signers are serious builders, operators, investors in crypto slash DeFi. The interview channel in Discord was mostly only used by candidates who were dis- desperate for attention, end quote. Cermak has not replied to repeated requests for comment from Coindesk since the nomination, though he's retweeted some positive mentions about his election. He told Coindesk via email on September the 1st, quote, I am not involved in any way and have no stake whatsoever, though he did provide a fair amount of feedback early on in the Discord. When EOS was launched, a similar attitude prevailed, but then block, but the then block producer roles were quickly overtaken, not by builders, but by large Holders. However, Hagen noted that the plan now is to make the multi-sig temporary situation a matter of months, not years. Oh, yeah, you can trust him, guys. Sure. Aaron Wright, co-founder of the consensus-backed Open Law, wrote on Twitter that multi-sig members could get themselves in a hairy spot with regulators. Damn, Skippy the can. Leshner replied to Wright, saying that DeFi is reinventing the board of directors. Hagen concurred but noted, quote, the multi-sig is only temporary. It's progressive decentralization. It's not perfect, but it's much better than having Chef Nomi or Sam Bankman-Fried having full control. Burton declined to actively pursue a role in SushiSwap. As an ongoing observer of roles like these, however, he told Coindesk, quote, I think that what we're seeing is that the incentives today are for whales to rig the game in their favor. The only way I can think of that shifting is if protocol politicians can make a great income, end quote. Today, SushiSwap extracted over $800 million from Uniswap, though nearly all of that had only been placed in Uniswap for the purpose of earning sushi ahead of the extraction. In fact, at the end of the process, Uniswap has come out ahead in terms of liquidity, at least as of this writing, the SushiSwap token migration is complete, according to Bankman Fried, DeFi Pulse, shows Uniswap liquidity dropping from well over 1 billion in crypto assets to 433 million as of 1800 UTC time. Uniswap had $285 million in total value locked on August the 26th, the day SushiSwap was first announced by the now exited creator Nomi Chef on Medium. SushiSwap does not currently have an accurate portal to check total locked value and is not yet tracked by DeFi Pulse. Based on the estimates prior to migration, it should have taken something like $300 million more in liquidity than Uniswap, though representing many fewer tokens. It remains to be seen how many liquidity providers will remain or will maintain their stakes now that the liquidity mining rewards in Sushi have dropped from 1000 per block to 100 However, oh God, it's just, it's like reading, it's like reading the future and the future is a horror story. That's what this is. This is a horror story. I guarantee you should have nothing to do with this. I'm just saying that's going to do it for the morning roundup. The morning roundup is brought to you by Robert Reich who doesn't like Tesla at all, apparently. Tesla forced all workers to take a 10% pay cut from mid-April until July. In the same period, 
Tesla's stock skyrocketed and CEO Elon Musk's net worth quadrupled from $25 billion to over $100 billion. Musk is a modern-day robber baron. Well, Musk came to his own defense, clearly tweeted back at Robert Reich to say all Tesla workers also get stock, so their compensation increased proportionately. You are a modern-day moron. And I immediately replied to this tweet with at inverse bra, as is tradition in the space. Anyway, so yeah, Elon Musk wiped the floor with Robert Reich's ass on that one. Now, this doesn't mean that I just automatically trust Elon Musk, but there have been several of you know, several employees have come out on Twitter in their boss's defense saying that their stock the stock holdings that they do have increased in price so much that they could do shit like pay off their house, get completely out of debt, pay off their student loans, pay off car loans. There's also been a couple of uh, employees that have come out and suggested that Elon Musk fires a whole bunch of employees right before the end of quarterly reports so that it doesn't end up showing on those quarterly reports. It shows up on the, you know, three months later, but I don't know. I never worked for Elon Musk and I, I never, I, I won't unless he moves to the Amarillo area. And last I heard, he was going to actually, I think, move over to Waxahachie or the Austin area. I'm not exactly sure, but that's what I've heard. Anyway, Robert Reich is over there, you know, quivering and, and he's your smoldering pile. Terrible Joke Corner brought to you by Dad Says Jokes. Who says? My doctor told me I'm going deaf. The news was hard to hear. Yeah, that was a good one. Um, There is nothing left to say, so I'm just going to say it. See you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.